Good morning, everyone. I feel like I need to introduce myself. My name is Trey Talley. <laughs> uh, Jeff preached last week, and uh, Anthony the week before that, and week before that, Justin Peters preached. And uh, so if you forgot what book we've been studying, we're on the book of John. Uh, so if you could, go ahead and turn to John chapter 6. Appreciate them uh, filling in while we went to Arkansas for a trip, and uh, they did a wonderful, wonderful job. Appreciate them doing that. And uh, I'll try to catch back up. We've been in uh, John chapter 6. I believe this is our fifth sermon in John chapter 6. It's one of the longer uh, chapters in John. There's just a lots and lots of material there. And just to kind of quickly review to put us back on the same page from a few weeks back, uh, chapter 6 begins with a massive amount of people that are now following Jesus. And this is the first we hear of that. Beforehand, it was not that many, but now they're following him. Uh, there in verse 2, they get, he gives, uh, John gives us the reason because he was performing signs upon the sick. And as we've covered many times, and we will as we go through the book of John, God is authenticating the message of Jesus Christ and validating him as truly sent from God by empowering him to do supernatural signs. These signs, just like road signs, point to something. What are they pointing to? They're pointing to this is all done by God, all right? So this is a, a big following, 5,000 men, uh, but they estimate around 20,000 total people there. And Jesus has, has led them to a desolate area where there are no restaurants, there's no Sam's Club, there's no Costco, there's no food, and uh, they are now hungry. So what's going to happen? Uh, well, we know the story. Uh, Jesus is presented with a little handful of food and multiplies it out, feeds everyone until they are completely satiated, completely full, and they even have baskets of food left over. So it's a supernatural feeding. All right, now, just to kind of fast forward again, upon the feeding, uh, they want to make Jesus king at that point. They want him to, to take him, 5,000 men, 20,000 people, bust in Jerusalem, kick the Romans out, and make Jesus the king, all right? Jesus hides himself. He goes up into the mountains to pray sends his disciples across the sea, and we know the story about that, the, the big storm that comes, Jesus walking across the sea, supernaturally, of course. The disciples see this, and uh, I believe it's Matthew that records this great proclamation of acknowledging him as God at that point, all right? Long story short, disciples make it across. Jesus makes it across. The crowd is like, where did everybody go? Where did Jesus and the disciples go? Next day, they begin to drift into Capernaum looking for Jesus. Is it because they love Jesus so much? Is it because they love his teaching so much? That is not it. If you look at John 6, 26, uh, it is because they had their stomachs fed. It's why they're looking for Jesus. Because you know what happens after you get fed once in a few hours? You get hungry again, right? And then they start this big comparison because they referred to him as the prophet, I believe back in 6, uh, 14, uh, yeah, there it is, uh, chapter 6, verse 14, uh, they called him the prophet who is to come into the world. And so this goes back to Moses' uh, prophecy that there is going to come the great prophet, a greater prophet, the ultimate prophet, and you must listen to him or you will die. Like this, this ultimate prophet that is coming is the final, ultimate, supreme prophet of God. Prophets, uh, hear from God, give that message to the people, right? And Moses says, this prophet that is coming is, is the prophet. He is the ultimate divide. You obey him, you live. You disobey, you die. And so they say, you must be the prophet. 
So Moses, a prophet, not the prophet, but perhaps one of the greatest or the greatest in the Old Testament, uh, gave us manna, our forefathers, for 40 years. So surely you, the ultimate great prophet, the prophet that he prophesied about, if Moses could provide food for 40 years, surely you can do better than one meal. You know, we're expecting lots of food to come from you. And uh, that's why they're after him. So Jesus goes on to explain that he is not there for free food. He is there to provide eternal food, which is himself, eternal life, salvation, forgiveness of sins. How do they take that message? This is where we find ourselves today. All right, so look at verse 60, and we'll go through verse 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word to look at today, to focus on. And God, I pray that uh, as you've inspired the writers and inspired John, Lord, to record these words for us, Help us to see that they are indeed important, that all Scripture has been breathed out by you, and there are critical lessons, there's critical doctrine that must be learned from your word. Help us to put our beliefs, help us to put our behaviors in line with your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you look back at verse 60, let's go back there. Uh, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Now, and I remember years ago reading this as a young person, always putting the word disciples with the 12 disciples, all right? You'll notice as you go through the book of John that he'll use the word disciples kind of loosely, and then the context defines whether or not they're true disciples or false disciples. And we found the same with the way John uses believed in or believed. Uh, he'll use the same word believed in Jesus, but sometimes he's going to be talking about true belief for salvation, other time false belief. So how do you know the difference? You've got to read the rest of the passage in context, okay? So here he's not talking about the 12 disciples. So what is a disciple in general? All right, in general, a disciple is someone who is a particular student of a teaching or student of a teacher. And they're there to listen. They're there to learn from this teacher. Uh, many of these people, if you look back in chapter 6, verse 25... Uh, you'll see where they called him rabbi. What does rabbi mean? It means teacher, right? So they acknowledged him as their rabbi. They acknowledged him as the teacher. 
and supposedly they were his disciples. But if you look at John 6, 26, you will immediately see that they were not really there for his teaching. Again, they were wanting food at that point. There's multiple reasons they're coming to Jesus. And if you consider the entire chapter there, these people that can call themselves disciples of Jesus, that call themselves following Jesus, there's hints along the way that they're not really there for the teaching of Jesus. If you go back to verse, uh, I believe it's 1 and 2 there, you see that why were they following Jesus? They've gone to this desolate area. They followed him for a long, long time, way out in the middle of nowhere. And they followed him, why? For the teaching of Jesus? No. They followed him for the signs that he was performing on the sick. Not that all these 5,000 men, 20,000 people were sick. But listen, there's no entertainment to be found, all right? This is amazing. This is wondrous. And as we've mentioned before, supernatural signs are not packed on every page of the Bible. You find them done in big epics, in big eras, all right? You get Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha, then Jesus and the apostles. There was nothing like this going on. People aren't having their eyes open, their ears, deaf ears to hear, people rising from the dead or the lame to walk. They haven't walked for years. This is amazing. This is supernatural. They want to see these things. But does that make them a true disciple of Jesus? No, they're, they're wanting to be entertained, all right? So you get the entertainment crowd coming. Then Jesus feeds them. Now you have those that want more food from him. Then you have those who, who want him to be king. So it's this personal gain that is eventually exposed of why so many people are following him. What can you do for me? I want more food. I want political power. I want you, I want you to kick out the Romans. I want you to give us more food. I want you to entertain us. Heal someone else again. More signs, more signs, more signs is what the Jews kept on demanding of Jesus. All right? So many of these supposed disciples are going to be revealed as false disciples because when Jesus teaches, they reject his teaching. All right? So being a follower of Christ is more than literally using your feet to follow Christ like these people were. And, and similar things can be said of today's people as well, right? What makes you a true follower of Christ? What makes you a true disciple of Christ? Uh, think on that for a minute. We'll be getting into that more and more here. Uh, are there false followers of Christ even now? And the answer is obviously yes, right? Uh, we're going to find out today that chapter 6 opens up with this boom, 5,000 men are there following Christ, their families, 20,000 people. This is huge. This is amazing. This is a massive crowd. Then you get to the end. It's like the crowd has shrunk by 99.9999% when the teaching gets clear and he articulates it so well, they all go away except for just a few. All right. So if that can happen, then false followers of Christ, people calling them disciples of Christ that were false, it can definitely happen today. And we know that it does. Uh, false disciples blend in quite well until their incorrect beliefs and or behaviors are confronted. And many of his disciples were there for the wrong reasons. And when Jesus does not acquiesce or bend to meet their needs that they think they, they, that Jesus should perform for them, they go their own way. Uh, their mind was set on earthly success, not on eternal salvation. And oftentimes this can be a mark of a false disciple. If you are committed and determined and you're using Jesus like these people were for earthly success and not seeing the eternal worth, 
That, that is a danger, all right? A true disciple of Christ will submit to all of Christ's teaching. A false disciple will pick only the teachings that benefit himself. Take that in mind for a moment, okay? A true disciple of Christ is going to put himself under the authority of Jesus, under the authority of all of his teaching, and, and bow to that, and, and will submit to that teaching. A false disciple will pick and choose the teachings that scratch his back and not take the full plate, all right? Uh, what was the saying that was so hard in this section that we're going to get into? Uh, look back here at chapter 6. Uh, look back there at verse 60, 61. Uh, verse 61 says, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? So John acknowledged there in verse 60, the disciples heard it. They said this is a hard saying. Many people were offended by this saying. What did Jesus say that was so offensive, right? Well, he is saying that, that he is the ultimate bread of life. Old Testament contains types. We've covered this a lot. New Testament contains the ultimate substance of those types. Uh, of One of those types, right? The easiest one is, is a lamb that was sacrificed for atonement of sin. Over in the New Testament, John announces Jesus as the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Was Jesus literally a sheep? No. He was the substance, and those lambs in the Old Testament were the type, all right? It's like foreshadowing. It's pointing to the ultimate one that is to come. These people were wanting more manna. They want more bread on the ground. They want more bread in their mouth. They want their stomachs full. And Jesus is saying, no, I am the manna. You eat of me for eternal life. It is only through me. If you do not eat of me, you do not have eternal life. This is a very hard, hard teaching for them. Uh, so is he saying that he literally must be eaten of blood and body? That's not what he is saying, all right? Again, it's a type, and it's a substance. It's, it's, it's a high, so the Old Testament types go to spiritual, all right? And that's what we see happening here. Now, some have misinterpreted that, Roman Catholic Church being one of them, they interpreted this passage to mean that people must literally eat of the blood and body of Jesus Christ in order to have eternal life. So how do they do that, all right? Well, they have their priest work, uh, work some magic there when they do the Mass. And the priest turns regular bread and regular fruit of the vine, wine, into blood by, by speaking over it. And the, the, the bread is turned into the body at the moment it goes into the people's mouth. So now people have the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Is that what he's talking about here? No, it's not what he's talking about. He's going to go physical to spiritual. You must, they had to eat of me, eat of the manna to live. Now you must eat of me to have eternal life, not literally. Now, what do they eventually do with that? Well, eventually, the, if the Roman Catholic Church has the power to disseminate the body and the blood of Jesus Christ for eternal life, what would it mean if you're not in the Roman Catholic Church? You have no ability to have access to the body and blood of Jesus Christ then, right? So it's, that's bad. So that was one of the ways that they could, could say, no, we are the way. Do we believe that? No, we do not believe that. All right, uh, just to make sure you know that. Move on to verse 61. When uh, we just covered that, take offense at it. All right, we kind of covered that as well. Uh, how does Jesus deal with their unbelief? So they're taking offense at it. They say this, this is a hard saying. They're rejecting Jesus. 
Uh, how does he deal with it? What does he say next? There's an odd twist here. Look at verse 62. And let me read them in con together. 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then look at verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It seems like a big jump. Uh, it seems like John left out paragraphs there, right? Uh, it's just a, it's a big jump. It's like, what is he talking about? Well, they're offended by the teaching. They're grumbling about the teaching as well. Remember, they, they love to grumble. And uh, there's definitely a connection here to the Israelites who are grumbling when Jesus is teaching. And the comparisons we've covered earlier in chapter 6 to the Israelites that were grumbling to Moses. And we recall the Israelites grumbled so much that Moses was like, God, just take me, take me now. I can't handle the grumbling anymore. And God reminded Moses, they're not grumbling against you. They're grumbling against me. You're just the middleman, which is a hard position to be in sometimes, right? Uh, so they're grumbling here, and they're taking offense. What does Jesus say? They're in verse 62. It's this odd change-up. But it's not that odd if you consider the whole chapter, all right? Sometimes when we divide up little sections to teach through, to preach through, like we have through John 6, we can kind of lose the context. But if you look back a few verses, you see that he's still in that same line of thinking. Look at verse six, uh, chapter 6, just a couple of places here. Look at 32 and 33. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So just to recall, what was Jesus talking about there? He, God gave the manna. Now God has given the true bread, the ultimate bread, and it's from heaven. Where is it? It's me. It's Jesus Christ. All right, look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Here they are grumbling and grumbling and grumbling some more, right? Now, when we step back and consider the whole context of what's going on, we can see that people are rejecting the teaching of Jesus because they're rejecting the authority and the identity of Jesus, they're rejecting his authority and his identity, so therefore they're rejecting his teaching as well. What have they rejected? Well, just the verses we read there, you can begin to see that they're rejecting the incarnation of God. They're rejecting uh, God the Son's descending from heaven. So they've rejected the descension from heaven, therefore they're rejecting his teaching. So now Jesus is saying, what, if you see the Son ascending back into heaven? Then will you believe? Again, they want more and more and more signs. But logically, just using what we know of Scripture, no one was performing signs, miracles, and wonders. God was doing this to validate, authenticate his messengers, just as he did with Moses, right? Moses, how are they going to listen to me? And God gives him three signs to go show them that this is supernatural. This is, I am authenticated, validated by God. Now Jesus is just doing signs, miracles, and wonders left and right, and yet they're still saying, no, not enough, not enough. We need food is what we need, all right? We need more food. That's what we need. Look at verse 63. Jesus is going to teach them that it is more than more signs that they need. They need to be born again by the Spirit. 63. 
It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, does their disbelief, massive disbelief, right? Thousands upon thousands, down to only a few by the end here. Does their disbelief and rejection of Jesus actually do anything to change the truth of who Jesus is? And the point is no, right? Jesus is not God the Son incarnate, the Messiah, based on majority vote. And it's not, he's not that based on majority vote today. It is always the minority that believes the truth. Wide is the gate that leads to hell, right? Narrow is the way that leads to heaven. Here, uh, Jesus is laying this out. Like, you have gathered your forces together, are dis grumbling, disbelieving, offended at my teaching, and, and, and does this discount anything? No, because in the end, your flesh is no help at all. It is the Spirit who brings you to belief and repentance. And Jesus taught, I mean, John uh, has recorded a lot of Jesus' teaching on this for us. Flip back over to John 3, verses 5 through 8. John 3, verses 5 through 8. And we, I don't want to re-preach this entire sermon here, but just to kind of review, because uh, it goes in, goes in line here with verse 63. It's a great cross-reference. Who gives you life? It is the Spirit. Uh, what contribution do you make? Well, let's consider that, all right? Um, uh, verse 63 kind of gives it away with the flesh is no help at all. But uh, look over at John chapter 3, verse 5 through 8. This is the big, big uh, conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And we'll just do 5 and through 8 here. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And what was the point that Jesus was making about the Spirit? The Holy Spirit is sovereign, all right? Autonomous, you could say. It is not, he is not controlled by people. So the Holy Spirit regenerates those that he regenerates. He brings them to life. Uh, what help is the flesh? The flesh is no help at all. This regeneration is compared to, Jesus makes a, a, a comparison here, an analogy, a metaphor, that it's like the wind, like we can't control the wind, that the wind is blowing 60 miles per hour to the east. I can't walk out there and say, turn west, right? I, it just doesn't work. I could say it, but it's not going to obey me because I'm limited. I'm just a, just a dude. I can't control the wind with my voice. Uh, and, but, but Jesus makes the comparison to the spirit. Just like you cannot control the wind, the humankind, mankind, has no control over the sovereignty of God. God is God. Man is man. Holy Spirit, being God, the one who brings life, we have no control over that Holy Spirit. He is God. He is autonomous. He is sovereign, right? Now, when the Holy Spirit brings life to the person, is there effects? Are there consequences? Absolutely. That's what Jesus says here. You can't control the Spirit, but when the Holy Spirit regenerates, brings a dead soul to life, they are going to be changed. Just as the wind blows, you see the effects of it. I can't tell the wind to blow, but I can see where the wind is blowing. 
so it is in salvation. When the Holy Spirit regenerates you, there is right belief, then there is an acknowledgement of sin, confession of sin, repentance of sin. How is all that done? Did you arrive there on your own because you have great logic skills better than others? No, your flesh is how much help? No flesh at all. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, turn over to John 1, 12 through 13. We see this again. John 1, 12 through 13. He opened, John opens up with some of this um, content, this doctrine, and then expands upon it as he goes through the book of John. But John 1, 12 through 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born of God. They must be born of the Holy Spirit, right? So these are the ones that are children of God. If you are saved, it is not because you and your flesh did something first to gain the favor of God. Think on that for a moment. If you are saved, it is not because you in your flesh did something first to gain the favor of God. I mean, just look back at the verses we just looked at or look back at verse 63 that says it very concisely. Uh, how much help is your flesh to bring about salvation? Let's see. No help at all. All right. What does that no mean? Maybe it means a little. No. <laughs> it actually means none. Not a zilch. None. No. All right. Uh, Luther, Martin Luther, uh, debating uh, the famous humanist Roman Catholic scholar Erasmus spent much time debating him on this one verse. And his quote to Erasmus was this. He said, according to this passage, the flesh profits nothing, and that that is no little something. In other words, it is worth noting that we as humans cannot in any way contribute to our own salvation. No means no. And that no is no little something. All right, it's, it's zero. Uh, so we can contribute nothing to it. Uh, no the flesh helps none at all. Now, if your salvation was convert, were converted to percentage points, how much did you do and how much did God do? Don't answer out loud. <laughs> all right. How much did you do? How much did God do? And we, everyone's heard the sayings before. Well, God did most of it, you know, but I did my part and he did his. And uh, that's really hard to reconcile with Scripture. Uh, when you look back at verse 63 or the other passages we just looked at, John 1, 12 through 13 or, or John chapter 3, it's like, how much did you do? It's like, no, God did. God brings you to life. God regenerates the dead soul. How far can a dead man jump is always the question. Not far at all. In fact, none. And that's how much we do to contribute to our own salvation. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 2 through 8. Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 8. In this passage, Paul lists what he used to be proud of and used, used to boast about as being right before God. And it was all these works of the flesh. In other words, what he could do in and of himself. And he was very proud of these things before his salvation. But he compares them now. And, and look, look what he used to think was earning him a trip to heaven and what he ends up realizing earns him a trip to heaven. Uh, verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Uh, obviously, he's stirred up, all right? He is mad. 
For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is a great cross reference. Underline it. If you want to put John 6.63 over there in the side, whatever you need to, to put these two together. He says, put no confidence in the flesh. And then he begins to list these things out where he, that he used to be confident in. He says, though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Beautiful passage here, right? He's saying, look, if, if you could earn your way to heaven, I exhausted these things. It's kind of like, I hate to reference him again, but kind of like Martin Luther in the 1500s, right? He was just exhausting himself, working so hard, punishing his body, doing everything he could in his flesh to earn his way to heaven, to get there, to finally achieve salvation. Paul had all these things together. Look who I am. But then when he's truly saved, he looks at everything that he had gained in his flesh, and it was nothing. It was all rubbish. It was all trash. And this is, if you're truly a believer, uh, and you're thinking that you've brought something to it, you need to rethink again. Because anything that we bring in and of ourselves to God, saying, look at this, I deserve salvation, is pure trash. It's pure rubbish. And at the end of the day, it's pride. It's arrogance. It's self-righteousness. All right? Instead, who does Christ look to? Christ and his works for salvation. Uh, look at verse 64. Let's continue on down. Go back to John chapter 6. John 6, 64. So Paul put no confidence in the flesh. John is recording that Jesus definitely says the same. The flesh accomplishes nothing, no thing at all. All right, verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Now, though this crowd is mixed with false disciples and true disciples, Jesus is not fooled. Uh, multiple times John has recorded already for us that he knew what was in man's heart. All right? He is not fooled by all the 20,000 people that he just fed and all the people who have now journeyed all the way across the sea just to see him again, to 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 be with him again? Is he fooled by all these people that are disciples, claiming to be disciples, claiming to be followers of Christ? He's not at all fooled by this. So he says, John records, he knows that there are some that did not believe, that do not believe, and the same is true today. You could take any church right now, there are thousands upon thousands, hopefully millions upon millions of people gathered around the world in church settings. Does that make them all followers of Christ, disciples of Christ? And the answer is no, right? There can be a large crowd 
They can claim to be followers of Christ. They can claim to be disciples of Christ. But God is never fooled. God knows the heart. He knows the person. He knows that person if they are truly believing or if they are truly not believing in him for salvation. No fooling God. Now, look at verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Now, this passage just rails against the self-righteousness of the people who think that they can just get to God on their own. They can build their own Tower of Babel. They can just build up with all their fleshly deeds, their good works, their self-righteousness, and just make it right into heaven easily, right? And according to verse 65, that you guys are all rejecting me, and as if to say that I am not the Messiah, I am not the bread from heaven, I'm not the Son of God, but verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So here is a conditional statement. All right, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So how many people can come to Jesus if it's not granted by the Father? It would be zero, right? No one can. Not one, not a few, not, not ten, not twenty, not even one. Unless it is granted him by the Father. And this is what we've covered back a few weeks ago. And just to remind you of these again, the, the doctrines of grace is what we sometimes refer to these doctrines are. Uh, as are heavy, heavy in John chapter 6. The inability of man and the sovereignty of God unto salvation are just riddled throughout John chapter 6. And we covered some of these, and you'll see them today. We'll review them quickly. The doctrines of grace. You'll see that tulip that often is used to, to help abbreviate some of those doctrines. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. And P, perseverance of the saints. And we spent a little time looking at how you, you can change the wording in there some and still hold the doctrinal truths like the perseverance of the saints. I, I prefer preservation of the saints because it deals with who is preserving us. All right, But you do persevere. Uh, total depravity. You could do, some people will do total inability or radical, radical corruption, etc. But, but the point of these are that Mankind has total inability in and of themselves. Unconditional election, limited atonement, the L there, some people will turn to, and it's okay, limited atonement or specific atonement or particular redemption. That, uh, that could be, you could still put it there, but it messes up the tulip board quite severely, all right? So you can, you can change those slightly to today's vernacular, but you want to be careful. Uh, but th this acronym has lasted many, many years and uh, serves us still well. But let's, let's consider that as we look at some of these passages. I mean, 665 is extremely clear. But go back, because Jesus has already said he's told them this. He says, this is why I told you these things. So when did he tell them? He just told them in the same chapter. Look back at 37, and we'll kind of go from there. All that the Father gives me will come to me. This is the granting that Jesus was talking about in 665. So all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So all that the Father gives to the Son, they will come to the Son. And all those that come to the Son, he will never cast out. So you have a lot of doctrines in here. It's, you, have this, this, uh, uh, you definitely have unconditional election. You definitely have irresistible grace. You definitely have preservation or perseverance of the saints that it is there. 
uh, go into John 6, 39. And what's he say here? This is the will of him who sent me, who sent Jesus, God the Father, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. All right, so you have the same body of people that he has granted to the Son, given to the Son. They all will come. No one the Father gives to the Son will not come to the Son. All right, they all will come. And as, as we've talked about, you, you come willingly because you are regenerated. You, cut, you went from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. Uh, which one comes first, regeneration or belief in repentance? And if you had a timeline where you could put these things, there's so much together, it's hard for us to, dis, to, to pry them apart on, in a sequential order, but theologically we can do such a thing. It is regeneration, where it brings your eyes to see, your ears to hear, your heart that is changed, right? This is the Holy Spirit birthing you again, who gives you right belief, who gives you repentance of sin. Uh, look at 644. Just go down a little bit there in John 6. And here is very similar to 665. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so here you have this no one can. Again, this is total depravity or total inability that mankind in and of ourselves has, we have no ability to come to God on our own. It takes God coming to us. So he says, no one can come to me unless, here's that conditional statement again, the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So all those the Father draws are the ones that will, will come to Jesus, uh, and you will be raised up on the last day. Now, go to 665 again. And he says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So this is what he's been teaching through John chapter 6, okay? He's getting toward the end of this, this, this topic for the moment and just reminds them, I've already told you of these things. Now, John chapter 6, uh, for those that, that ascribe to the sovereignty of God unto salvation and see the inability of man, this is a prime chapter to go to, and it is glorious to see that, that even though we deserved wrath, we deserve the curse of God because we've all sinned against him, that God supernaturally intervenes, brings us to life, and not just for a short period, but for all of eternity. And it's beautiful to look at. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit working to bring you to salvation, and there is no chance that a truly saved person will lose that salvation god the father has given you to the son you've been you've been drawn to the son uh, by the holy spirit you've been birthed again you have been sealed with the promised holy spirit you have eternal life now these are called doctrines of grace because they're beautiful grace when you truly understand it is an amazing thing they should make a song about it all right uh, it, it really is amazing uh, and if you don't understand the ultimate nature of grace, your, your, your worship is so stunted because you don't realize who you were and you don't realize what God has done. But the more you read John chapter 6 and go, wait a minute, you're saying that God saved me and I didn't contribute at all? Yes, that's what we're saying. That's, that's what John is saying. That's what Jesus is teaching, right? So what should you do? You should praise God and give him not, not, 
not 99% of the credit because you did 1% or 80% because you did 20, but give him all the credit for your salvation. Sola Deo Gloria. To him belongs all the glory for our salvation. All right? So that's a, it's a heavy, heavy chapter on that. If those are verses that you need to go back and reread and do some consideration of, uh, please do so. If you want us to be involved in that, I'll be glad to help, or the elders or other people in the church as well. Let's move on to John chapter 66. All right, all right 666. Uh, whoa. whoa. For all the people out there who have those end-time views, watch out. All right, John 6, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So they go from grumbling, they go from acknowledging this is a hard saying, they go from saying that these things are offensive that you are saying. Why are they offended? Because everything Jesus is teaching rails against their self-righteousness, all right? You consider Paul, who had all these attributes there. You think you're righteous in the flesh? Let me tell you, I did this, 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 and this, and this. Was it any gain? No, it was all trash, all right? That's the way a true convert will see everything that they thought they were bringing to the table. But if you don't see that, you are offended at grace. People get mad at grace. People hate the grace of God. Why? Eternal life? Forgiveness of sins? Like, why would someone get mad at that? Because they want to do it themselves. That's at the heart of self-righteous people. It's pride. It's arrogance. I don't need you to do it all. I can do most of it, if not all of it, all right? I'll get there on my own. And it is offensive. They grumble. They hate it. You must not know who I am, Jesus. Like, I really strive to keep the law. I don't, I, you're saying you're the eternal bread of life, but I, that's good, but I, I've accomplished quite a bit. No. Verse 66, we find out their feet uh, reveal their heart. What do they do? They turned back and no longer walked with him. They did not want a savior to rescue them from sin and give them eternal life. They wanted temporary gain. They wanted the political prestige. They wanted him to be the king. They wanted the free food, right? They wanted the entertainment, more signs, more signs, heal the hick, heal the sick, or the hick too. All right, heal the sick <laughs> from Arkansas. We need healing too. All right. Uh, they rejected Jesus once they realized he was not the kind of savior they wanted. And the crowd turns from 20,000 down to 12, minus one. What's that equal? 11, right? So you go from this massive crowd of people all following him who all, I mean, this looks like the first great mega church in Christian history, 20,000 people. Uh, but in the end, as Jesus' teaching gets clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer, there's only 11 believers that are revealed. Everyone else has gone away. And, and this is something to take into consideration today. It is easy to draw a very large crowd if the teaching is light. But as the teaching gets clearer and clearer and clearer, this is what you often will see. Not to say that every large crowd is bad or all, all, all not disciples, all right? But, but sometimes we see the same thing happening. Uh, and this is something for us to analyze ourselves. What do you, uh, what about you, do you believe, uh, do you love Jesus for who he is? Do you love Jesus even when you're sick, even when you are in need, even if you are or are going to be politically oppressed like the Jews were? 
Today's Christians are often revealed as true or false disciples when they don't get what they want from God. Did Jesus have the ability to feed all of the people again? Of course, right? Yeah, he's not limited. He's God. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. Did Jesus have the power to expel the Romans and take over Jerusalem right then and there? Oh, yeah, he's God. Again, right? He could create the whole world. He could easily just just dispel them and take over and reign. Uh, He could. Did Jesus have the power to heal everyone that came to him or just just everyone in Israel immediately healed if he wanted to yes he had that but and this is what the people wanted him to do but Jesus had bigger plans in mind it was more than meeting temporary uh, needs but the people were so blinded by the now and oftentimes we are I, I want I need a Jesus who meets my needs right now I want this fixed and if this isn't fixed then I'm I'm just done be careful, because if you turn your back on Jesus because he doesn't meet your needs the way you think they need to be met, this is at the heart of unbelief, not belief, all right? True believers persevere. True believers are preserved, okay? Look at verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So the words of eternal life that kept the disciples there were the same words that drove off all the others. Take that into consideration for a moment. Jesus did not change the message up. He delivered the same message. What were the results? 99.9% turned their back and left. But the true believers heard his words and acknowledged that these were the words of eternal life. Look what he says. Do you want to go as well? He says, to whom shall we go? Where else is there? Uh, And this wasn't, sometimes people think, oh, Christianity was like the only religion of that time or something. No, there were tons of options then. There's tons of options now. What does he mean? There's other religions. He could have gone back to Back, back to rejecting Christ and, and been a Jew and been going to the temple, etc. They, they could have done a lot of things, but they didn't. Why? Because they all lead to death. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The disciples were revealing true belief that no matter how hard this teaching is, they acknowledge that Jesus has the words to eternal life. What is a disciple? A disciple is one who submits to the teaching of the authority figure there. This is what Peter is doing. He said, no matter how hard it is, we submit. We are under your authority and under your words. Your words have the power for eternal life. Look at verse 70, 71. Jesus answered them, Thou not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Iscariot, for he whom he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So here John records that, of course, we know the story, uh, but even of the 12, that there's still unbelief within the 12. It is Judas. And Judas, we can get into this later, but he was a great example of a false disciple, a false follower. He was, he was an extraordinarily good false disciple. All right, what do I mean by that? Uh, the disciples had no clue. The, the, these 12 who spent years with him, 
had no clue that he was a false disciple, that he was a false follower. Even on the night of his betrayal, they, they didn't think he was going to betray Jesus. They had no idea. One of you is going to, be, be, going to betray me. And they're all like, man, who could it be, right? Judas didn't pop into their mind like, obviously it's Judas. We all know it, right? No, they didn't know. And so he's an he's a ultimate example of a false follower. But look at this. The popular group left. 99% of them all left. Only 12 remained, but Judas remained. That's what I'm telling you. He was an excellent false disciple. Like, even when the masses left, he remained. He remained incognito for all this time, even to the night of the betrayal, and the disciples still did not know. But who did know? Jesus knew the entire time. And so it is today. There is no fooling Jesus. So always be careful. Just being around the true disciples of Christ does not make you a true disciple of Christ, all right? An important lesson to remember from today's text is not all who profess to be followers of Christ actually are. The vast majority of the people following Jesus were proven to be false converts the clearer Jesus' teaching became. Test yourself today to make sure that you are a true follower of Christ. Make sure that you have truly true belief in him for salvation. You truly see your sin and confess of your sin and repent of your sin. And if you're not here uh, following him just for temporary gain. Uh, test yourself. Do you submit to his teachings? Because that's a true disciple of Christ. Do you, like Peter, see that there is no place else to go? That he is exclusively the bread that must be eaten of to get to heaven? Do you see Jesus' words as the key to eternal life? Because these are marks of a true disciple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the bread of life, the manna from heaven that we may eat on for eternal life. We thank you that you have saved all who are saved by absolute grace. And we cannot thank you enough for this because as Paul discovered, no amount of works in the flesh, no matter how hard he worked, could ever truly gain him access to heaven. Instead, he looked to your bread of life, the manna sent from heaven, he looked to Jesus Christ, God the Son, who descended and ascended back into heaven for salvation. And we do the same today. And Lord, if there's anyone here today or listening in today that has not seen Jesus as their Savior, they're still thinking there's something in them that they can self-righteously get to heaven on their own. God, open their eyes like you did to Paul, and may they see that all of their works combined, put together, equals a big bag of trash. There's nothing we can do to get ourselves there. We need the perfect works of Christ and Him alone. And it's in His name we pray.